Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining our webinar today on CMMC 2.0. And uh, regarding all the questions of, of where it's going, what the industry is doing, what the BIBCAC's doing, and um, what the CMMC board is doing. So hopefully, we'll provide a lot of uh, quality information for you. A uh, little house cleaning. Um, we're not here to sell you anything. Uh, we're here to uh, provide value, provide information, and hopefully do it in a, in a fun and, and relaxing environment. So uh, we also have a special guest today uh, as I introduce everybody. Uh, first and foremost, Jeff Dalton, who's the chairman of the board of the CMMC. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for having me. We have uh, several pro uh, provisional assessors, uh, Matt Titcomb joining us from Beak. Um, we also have Tony. Thank you, Tony, for joining us and uh, our very own Dasha Deckworth, uh, along with Robert Davies, our CEO, and myself, David Jones, I'll be the MC for this event today. Um, all right, well, with that out of the way, um, let's get some questions going and, and uh, hopefully provide some information to the people watching. Um, all right, uh, one of the first questions is, uh, what changed with the levels? How many are there now? Um, I'll let Jeff answer that first one. Well, I'll, I'll start, but there's a number of provisional assessors here today that hopefully will jump in and, and, and add to what I have to say. But um, obviously, we're getting a lot of questions about 2.0, um, a lot of questions. And the one thing everyone should just remember is that uh, it, it's pretty much the same as it was. There's some changes. But there's not the changes aren't as major as some people have have uh, have made them out to be. So yes, they compressed the model from five levels to three levels. Um, so what everybody was focusing on before as level three is now level two, and of course level one is is just level one. So that sort of leaves what was level four and five out. So they actually compressed it. So what was in one is still in one. What was in two and three is now called two and what is in four and five is now called three. Uh, that's not a huge change. Uh, it was always assumed that, that level two and four were transitional anyway, and would always be bundled with the levels above them. So that's not a major change other than in, in the nomenclature. Um, other than that, there was a reduction in the amount of practices by about 5%. So again, not a major change. Um, some folks have made a lot of news about how the so-called maturity practices have been removed from the model. And it is true that provisional assessors will no longer be required to score those practices. However, um, in order to successfully achieve any certification in this type of model, those practices are gonna have to happen one way or another. You just can't say, we're not gonna have written policies, we're not gonna have procedures. That's all still gonna happen. Um, so that scoping change is, is maybe a little bit of a, a de-scoping in the size of the assessment itself, but certainly isn't a de-scoping in the effort to protect your information and data, which is really what this is all about. So, uh, you know, they did, they did remove about 5% of the practices, including those and including some other ones, um, which are sort of in limbo right now. And, and they de-scoped a little, well, they, they reorganized the way that they're gonna roll this out. So if you recall before, they were gonna roll out, you know, X thousand by next year and 80,000 by the year after and 200,000 by the year after. And that's, they've changed the approach a little bit. And they've said, well, for now, level one companies are going to be self-assessment with the caveat that senior management is going to be on the hook for signing off on these and be responsible for those, which is a big change, uh, a good change, actually. Uh, and that there is going to be some bifurcation of the level two companies based on the kind of data they have. That number's yet to be determined. Uh, but um, a number of folks have said to me, oh, they've demolished the, the market. Well, they really haven't. There's still 60 or 70,000 companies at best guess that are going to be in the must be certified category. And right now there's a lot of discussion about what that number might be. So it's kind of open, but, um, you know, not in my view, not huge major changes. Do any of the PAs want to weigh in and whether I'm right or wrong about that? I think yeah, you made a, oh, I'm sorry. Um, go ahead, Dasha. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot. So uh, it's uh, we have been getting a lot of these questions also from uh, sure. the companies. It's what what has changed, and it looks like not much has changed. And you right. know what? 
it, it is kind of true. Uh, I think the biggest visual change is the three models, but are the three areas, uh, the three levels. But overall, it's you're right. Nothing from a, especially around the procedures. A lot of companies came and said, you know, no procedure. So technically, we don't have to do much. But I think what a lot of companies realize is that, yes, it's if you look at NIST, and this is what CMMC 2.0 goes back to, uses as a foundation, you have the requirements. It says it in there. You have to kind of show that you're doing these things. Yeah, you're not going to be scored on it, but you certainly have still the scope really hasn't much, hasn't really changed much. That's right. And, yeah. and one of the things is also is it seems like the a lot of companies also seeing that the urgency of getting certified and hurrying up and getting CMMC out of the way seems to have kind of dropped where, yeah, whatever, they'll figure it out. We'll wait until. But you know what? It's. In, it's not really. I mean, the first and foremost is we're still trying to protect our infrastructure or defense industrial base DOD. Right. So we still need to protect ourselves. Waiting is one thing that should not necessarily happen. Um, and the other thing is you still have the same requirements. You're still, the minute the contracts come in, you're going to be required to have that in place. And really the good thing that I very, very much welcome is the fact that the executives need to sign off on this. Yeah. Yes, it is yeah. self-assessment, mm -hmm. but it's a bit different. You know, Dasha, really quick. Ahead, Tony, sorry. Yeah. A great ahead, point that, you know, because CMMC is in limbo land, why they're they're making the sausage between 1.0 and 2.0, NIST 1800, 171, and 172 has not gone away. If you are doing, right. you know, if you're a defense contractor, you're required to meet that. And I think you know, the other aspect is because they didn't feel a lot of teeth um, in NIST 800 um, right. that they could blow it off. But I think the government as, as a new focus that there's no more slacking, you need to be operating um, under these, these compliances and that you can't throw a poem at everything that you're not doing and say, um, okay, it's all good. So I want to yeah. throw that out there about, about the poems and, and about uh, that uh, if anybody wants to grab that. Can we come back to what I think Dasha hit a critical point on the policies and procedures? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So one of the main things that most people are saying, well, I don't need policies. I don't need procedures. Yes, you do. They're in the non-federal organization controls in the back of 800-171. They're yeah. expected to be there. I'm not going to evaluate them as a uh, assessor. However, they are a part of your evidentiary proof. If you don't have them as evidentiary proof and you don't have any other evidence, my choices are now to interview and test. Let me tell you something. You do not want me interviewing and testing carte blanche because you do not have policies and procedures. You will fail. Organizations fail when you go just let the assessor run amok in interviews and tests. You want all that information that was in the old CMMC 1.0 is really now in the NFO controls to really provide evidence and proof that you're doing that as you meet the other 110. So don't blow it off. No, you're going to regret it. I, I agree, Matt. Um, you, you know, if you really read into the Appendix E of NIST 1-800-171, it assumes that you're already doing that. Mm -hmm. Right. And so as an assessor, we're assuming that you've already done that. So, you know, don't blow that off. With CMC model 1.0, it kind of pointed that out, right, with the 998, 999 practices, their processes, as they were called. So, yeah, I, I agree with you, Matt. Um, they, they need to be there. Um, even if it's industry best practices, as we all know, no one, not a lot of people follow, but it needs to be there. And under 171, which CMMC is based on, it, it assumes that you have the policies and procedures. And as an assessor, I'm gonna assume you have those as artifacts. Those are great points. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, um, I wanted to get back to um, when we talk about poems, um, what can and cannot be applied under NIST 800-171? Why don't we address that? 
So poems on the 2.0, CMMC 2.0 are back in, uh, which previously on the 1.0 were not. Um, it, it, is, it is going to make things easier, um, but at the same time, uh, I think this applies at the same level as NIST or PCI or anything. If you have a poem out there for a year or two years or three years and you're not showing any progress, um, it's not going to work. Um, poems, and to be honest, poems, especially in IT and cybersecurity, every company should have them. Even if they comply with CMMC at their level, they should always be looking at what is the future bringing? What are the new risks? Because part of CMMC and this, you also have risk management. So you have to have that poem and kind of list out what, how can I improve? How can I stay on top of the threat and risks that are constantly changing every single day? So that's, I think, I, I think is a good thing, especially now that you can kind of officially show it even during the assessment that, yep, I'm not just working on the requirements right now, but I also have a forward thinking strategy on how to stay compliant and not just a snap point in time as in, yep, today I'm good and tomorrow who cares? So I think that's a great thing right there. Thank you, Dasha. As we're going through our regular questions, we're getting some in the chat. So I, I wanna make sure to bring them up in case people are not reading them. We had a question, I think Jeff answered it, but what's the difference between a registered practitioner and the other certifications? Yeah, I, I can address that to everybody. And, and it's, it's really simple. The, uh, there are people that, so a couple of reasons. There are people that want to be part of the CMMC ecosystem. They want to be related to it. They want to get some training. They want to be tested, but they don't necessarily want to be assessors. They maybe want to be consultants and get a little bit extra training. And they've agreed to sign the code of professional conduct and have some level of oversight. Those are the registered practitioners. They're not authorized to do assessments. They're not authorized as certified professionals. Uh, they're on the marketplace as people that are have a strong interest in CMMC, have aligned themselves in the ecosystem, taken the AB's training and, and some uh, examination, but they're not certified versus a certified professional or certified assessor who is someone that will be authorized. And we have several on the call today to conduct assessments and they, they actually control the gold standard. They're the ones that can sign the document that says I'm, I take responsibility for this company passing this CMMC assessment. That's a very special designation. There's a high degree of responsibility with that. When you think about it, a certified assessor is the person that stands between a company and, and closing uh, potentially closing a very large deal, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes. And people have asked me, well, why can't we just grandfather in anybody who has any certification? And the answer is that it's more complicated than that. And, and it's, a, it's an amazing amount of responsibility when Dasha has to sit down with the CEO at, I don't know, I'm just gonna make up a name, Raytheon or Northrop and say, sorry, uh, you're not ready. So you can't bid on this work. That takes an awful lot of experience, seniority and training. RPs of course will not be able to do that. Um, so that is the, the basic difference between RPs and RPOs is the level and the intensity of the training and the testing. Jeff, just quick question on the reverse of that. So if Dasha signs off Raytheon and they get breached, where, what was, where's the liability? What, what happens then? That's a good question. The, the AB doesn't get in, you know, doesn't have a policy on that because it's outside, outside the scope of our responsibility, but the DOD certainly has a, has a policy on that. And I, and I think overall, uh, just like any other assessment, it's an assessment or an audit or certification is a snapshot. It's a point right. in time. Uh, the minute an assessor signs off on that and walks out the door, um, you know, a whole new ballgame, whole new risk threats and everything. So that's why what we're at least trying to do, and I'm, I'm sure everybody else does as well, is trying to get the message across that this is, yes, the certification is important, but to maintain your level, to maintain secure, because yeah, if you get breached, depending on how bad it is, depending on what exactly was breached, there probably will be some kind of impact on the contract or the project or whatever you're working on as a company that can be detrimental, that can cost a business. So once the certification is in place, maintaining it, I think, is the key message here as well right. for, for all companies. Yeah. 
like it or not, it has to be cultural. Yeah. yeah. This is cultural. kind of what I was, this is kind of what I was getting at before we, we tend as assessors, we tend to get bogged down in, in evidence discussions because uh, that's what we do. And when we go to conferences, we get all nerdy and we talk about practice numbers and subpractice numbers and what evidence is good and what evidence is. And we get all, you know, our eyes get all glazed over. That's not really what this is about. That's what our job is about. Mm -hmm. But the job of the average company that's doing work in the DIB is, and, and I think uh, I think that um, uh, Dasha, you know, articulated it pretty well, is their job is to protect information data and networks. Mm -hmm. And the DOD has said CMMC is the gold standard for that. This is the list of what companies who protect data and networks are about. And so you should be implemented this as a cultural way of doing business, not talking about evidence. And I've had so many conversations with the companies. They say, can you send me a list of the evidence I have to have ready for my appraisal or my assessment? And I say, no, just focus on making sure that this is built into your culture and the evidence will manifest itself on its own. You don't have to worry about that. But people get myopic about, about checklists and quick fixes and toolkits and, you know, 30 days or less guaranteed kinds of sales, sales jobs. Uh, don't, don't worry about the evidence, worry about building this into your culture. And then when you're ready, you're ready. And it's kind of tough to accelerate it because culture, what is it? Uh, Peter Drucker used to say, culture eats process for lunch. Mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's an important lesson. I'm serious. Everybody should start thinking that way. And, and I think to that point, and to expand on what Dasha said, when you focus on just that audit event and you don't put that culture in place and you start to drift away, you can still get slammed for an incident that came externally, the DIVCAC, DC3, NCIS, et cetera, come investigate you and you lose your certification, you get a negative CPARS rating and you've lost that contract. Yeah. So you have to maintain that through the entire certification period. So don't lose sight of that. And to Jeff's point, put the culture in place. Yeah. I, that includes, um, you know, what I get all the time is and they, they throw the CMMC checklist over to yeah. the IT department. You go fix it, you know, complete Not about it. IT. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And you know, that's where the yeah. culture need, needs to have that shift to that. Yeah. They need to realize that cybersecurity needs to be threaded throughout the, uh, you know, the, the, the thread, I mean, thread it throughout the, the fabric of the organization. So it's not just IT. Yeah. I mean, it's human resources, marketing, um, yeah. you know, facility so, managers. If you've got physical facilities, it's, it's more than just I, IT. Ironically, the practices in the model that were intended to help guide for that culture change and make it, make it real were removed in the descoping. Right. So that's interesting. Yeah, that's kind of where it was. Um, I want to circle back around with certification. We understand that level one is, is self self assessment certifications. A uh, level three, you need a third party to uh, certify, and then right. level two is bifurcated. Uh, can somebody address you know why the bifurcation and and where is it drawn the line on bifurcating on whether you need or don't need a third party certification? Well, the, the line hasn't been drawn yet. All, all we know is that there will be a line drawn and that the DOD will provide that information. But, but the, reason it, the reasoning is sound in that um, there are some companies that manage data that is more secure and more sensitive than others. And there are probably examples of companies that, that that don't have a need to have that level of rigor in an assessment. So they're trying to figure that out. Uh, there, the line has not been drawn. The characteristics of the, the two sides of the bifurcation have not been drawn. And there's lots of discussion about it going on, but right now there's no new information that I'm aware of. Jeff, I would actually suggest there's two lines. <laughs> Maybe so, yeah. There's the DOD line saying, these are the companies contractually we're going to require to be certified. And what I'm seeing is a second line now starting to form of Prime saying, we only want to work with certified companies. Right, right, that's, that's true. That's the market right. pressure, I think, pushing on this side here yeah. that I think is the greatest thing DOD has done with CMMC 2.0. And I 
my fully expectation is it was an unplanned consequence of what they did. Yeah. That we're now seeing market pressure forcing companies to certification. And, yeah. and I think that's where we're going to see those two lines in there. If, if, if CMMC ends up being like virtually every other model out in the industry, that's exactly what will happen. You know, your prediction will come true. And CMMI and ISO and all these other models, all of the primes are requiring their subs to achieve some level of certification in order to do business with them now. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing outside the DOD the same thing happening. So it's the potential for that happening is very high. Yeah, you know, I, I heard that uh, an example, and I think it was one of the town halls where uh, the example of, of bifurcation was something to the effect of the, the risk level of the CUI. So if you're a uniform company and it's just drawings of, of, of uniforms, self-assessment. If you're a company providing right. a specific electronic circuit board into a, a, a missile, you're, you're gonna need third party. Um, bringing around on that certification, um, we got a question in here that says, has this, with the reduction of those additional 20 requirements and now down to the 110 with NIST, has certification method changed at all with, with the assessors? And if so, how? So, Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting, I, I was very, as a matter of fact, some of the folks on this call worked on uh, the team that I led creating that assessment method and um, back um, going more than a year ago and what they're calling now the CMMC assessment process or the cap um, has not changed. Uh, there's nothing about it. You know, the matter of fact, the entire operations of the AB have barely changed with 2.0. We still do the same things we were doing before. Uh, the cap, you know, assessments are assessments are assessments, and they have to be consistent from one company to another to have any validity whatsoever. And that model has not changed. Uh, I don't believe it's changed at all due to 2.0. There are some updates occurring for other reasons, but I don't believe 2.0 drove any changes to the cap. Right. Um, and, and, I, and I think on that point, if you really want to know this, the actual details, go read and live by 800-171A. Yeah. As an assessor, that is going that is really our Bible, and that's really what the CMMC assessment guide, where they go through each of the pr- practices, the 110 requirements yeah. come from. And and if I can chime in here from an assessment perspective, it's still going to be the same. We're going to be interviewing people. We're going to want to see the evidence. We're going to want to test it. It's still the same process. So just yeah. just saying, yeah, we're doing this we're going to really want to see it that you actually yeah. do. I mean, assessments have to have rules of evidence. They have to have procedures. They have to have checkpoints. They have to have, you know, daily reviews. They have to have peer reviews. There's a process around it. Now that's different than the assessment guide that Matt was referring to. This is a, this is the actual assessment process in order for that to have any validity in the industry whatsoever it has to be standard from organization to organization and from assessor to assessor. And that's the purpose of that. What you're measuring, why you're measuring it. And yeah, you, you can't uh, mm-hmm. measure what you, you don't try to measure. Right. So, um, and the same rules from company to company. Yeah. yeah. we got a good question in here. It says the last article I read said we can be two years away from the CMMC 2.0 model. They gave that range, right? From nine months to two years in the sausage making Um, and even going live. Are companies being held accountable now, even though it hasn't been released yet? So the short answer to that is yes. CMMC 2.0 is 800-171 with some guidance from DOD. And DOD is taking tons of companies over to DOJ for False Claims Act charges already this year without Mm. any of the new future rulemakings. All you have to do is go look up in 2019, Cisco got a $7 million fine for violating 800-171 underneath the False Claims Act. Yes, you're still responsible for complying. Right. So, and there's a second half of that to to that question in that the rulemaking is gonna take nine to, well, they're saying nine to 24 months that rule is a rule that basically allows contracting officers to put CMMC in solicitations to require you. However, 
That does not mean that CMMC assessments won't start. Mm -hmm. The DOD is working very hard with the AV right now to determine incentives to, to companies voluntarily conduct CMMC assessments. Uh, one way they do that now is the DOD and all government agencies uh, rely on a point system to require ISO 9000, ISO 27001, CMMI, uh, ISO 20000, uh, a point system that they use to evaluate assessments. So that's one way that they can incentivize companies to adopt CMMC now. And the, DO, the DOD and the AB are working uh, judiciously to try to get that started. Great answer, thank you. Um, next question here, can someone please comment on the amount of confusion seen, seems to be from the primes and government agencies as to what is CUI? In other words, receiving a contract and the government and or the prime does not know what the CUI is. Can somebody address this? And, and I find that you know in my engagements with smaller businesses, they don't know if they need to be level one or level two because nobody will give them an answer on defining if they actually have CUI uh, with their prime or not. If, if I can add something to it. So there, there, is, there is exact information around what constitutes CUI, what it is. Each company is responsible for protecting that information. So ultimately it is the company's responsibility to know, understand, and hopefully mark CUI accordingly. Um, yes, we should be getting some help from the government and the, and the primes to get information already labeled. However, relying on it at this point, um, you can, but the responsibility for you as a company is still on you. So yes, if you get something, and it's CUI, it's clear and simple. However, the my recommendation here is really for to look at, go to the go to the website, go take a look at what is it that your company actually is working on? What are the products or services? And does it fall into the CUI category? Because the CUI or the government actually sets up what constitutes CUI, what the data is. But you as a company need to know which one of the information that you're either managing, creating, or processing in some way, shape, or form is CUI. So that's a responsibility on the companies. Yeah. We, we recommend actually pulling out DOD instruction 5248 because it makes DOD responsible for telling you what is CUI. Uh, we recommend even in the proposal phase, starting out with asking DOD, have you clearly identified what a CUI in this contract? Will you provide a security, uh, a CUI classification guide? Um, will you provide decontrolling and de-aggregation guidance to us for this contract? And put DOD on task at the very start about clarifying that. Now, Great, great point, Matt. Thank you. There, there is a bad thing starting already and I'm running into with clients because DOD doesn't know. They're marking everything as CUI. <laughs> and I had a client yesterday have a conversation about their rate sheet was suddenly marked as CUI. And I'm going against which category can you classify a rate sheet that is publicly information from the company as CUI? And like, well, how do we handle this? Well, you got to go back to the contracting officer in the program office and say, no, this is not CUI. And here's why. And explain in you know, the general definitions of this is public information. It's our information. You don't have the authority to classify our public information as CUI, but you, you're going to have to start to help DOD to learn because they just don't know. Yeah, that, that they need training with some of the, the contracting up. Op, um, There's certainly a conversation required. Okay, don't, don't think it's written in stone. If you don't agree with it, or there's that, you just go back to your KO and have that that conversation. Mm -hmm. I feel for Dasha as well. I mean, I, I have clients, they don't know where to go to, to figure out what yeah. the definition of CUI is. Um, they'll say, we've got ITAR, that's not CUI. You know, So there's all kinds of misinformation out there that, that really a lot of times I, I'm providing basic education mm -hmm. on, right. on that. And Dasha, um, yeah, they know what their sensitive data is, but they don't always know what the compliance requirements are. 
Uh, they know it could be CUI, so it means I need to be compliant with CMMC. So um, it's, it's very confusing out there for, for a lot of those uh, uh, DIM contractors. Okay, we, um, one of the questions is, uh, do I still have to gather log data? And I think that's a, always uh, a thorn in the flesh, especially for smaller organizations dealing with, uh, you know, log management, dealing with a SIM. Um, they're not cheap. Um, even, you know, sometimes there's cost savings going through managed services for that, but um, do they still have to get a SIM? Well, log management is part of the requirement. So they have to be reviewed, they have to be analyzed. So yeah, in order to analyze and review and be able to respond to threats, you need logs. So the answer is yes. And nothing says it needs to be a Cadillac and automate it um, depending upon the size of your network. Uh, you just It needs to be done, whether it's done manually, painstakingly manually, or you get a kind of a less of a Cadillac, you know, get a compact car, um, whatever's affordable to you, but it, it needs to be done. It, it's still a requirement regardless of, of uh, CMMC. It's, it's a 171 you know, requirement. And, and I think, you know, when I think of the requirements, I always go to the, the one at the end of the bookend, which is identify unauthorized use of your environment. If you're not capturing and maintaining logs and reviewing those logs, How do you, do that? you cannot meet that requirement. That is the bookend. The very start one is control the flow. If you can't tell me how information is flowing and verifying it with your logs to verify that you can show unlawful use, you can't meet those requirements. So unless you give nobody login information and you unplug from the internet, that's you're right. <laughs> and everything is handwritten yeah. at that point in time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but even then you still have to control who's got access to it. So you need some kind of a login sheet or something. Well, that's it. That's the first bookend control the flow of CUI. Everything else between those two is in the middle. When you kind of look at the story of how they fit and we all want to forget that part of that last one of identify unauthorized use. Yep. You can see the geekiness coming out from our assessors here. They get excited about some of this stuff. <laughs> yes. well, it's, it's the Bring it up ones. a level, guys. It's the fun ones is, is we done. sit here as nerds and we write. And I think in stories, we were talking about music on how things fit together and flow together. Yeah. It, there's a flow between all the requirements and the way they're meant to kind of stitch. They're just kind of lumped together. But there is a natural flow between them that when you kind of philosophically and esoterically think about it, you kind of go, ah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, this brings up a good point since the, the, I think that question of the log management or SEM was probably in the back of the mind from a financial standpoint. Did the changes going from 1.0 to 2.0 reduce some of the cost for the smaller organizations? Because I know in the very beginning when that came out and, and we're doing assessments, and these small businesses, 50 employees or less, they have CUI, they make one little piece, but it it's, goes into a missile and they have to meet the requirements. And um, the, if they haven't done any kind of structure before, there is an upload cost. So um, can anybody speak? Is there some cost savings from the changes or not really? I, I love this question. <laughs> I'm going to start with it. First of all, there's there's two kinds of costs. I, it's going to be a long-winded answer, but this is something that I'm very passionate about. There's two kinds of costs. There's cost to protect your data from intrusion and protect your customers' data and not be a poorly performing company. There's those costs. Those are also known as the ramp up to CMMC costs by some people. And then there's assessment costs, which is the actual CMMC cost, the actual mandate cost. If you have to spend time and money to ramp up to protect data, this is something you already said you were doing. So in theory, there's no cost there. Of course, we all know that's not the case, right? But in theory, there's no cost because you've been signing a document or many owners have been signing a document for years saying we're there already. So when I hear people say, oh, it's gonna cost my company a million dollars or 500,000 or 200,000, to ramp up to a CMMC audit, my first question is, is well, what were, you, what were you doing? 
if you weren't protecting information. Right. So that to me, that that's 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 a different discussion. And I'm not trying to be callous, but I just I get the question so many times when people say, I don't know how many times I read articles say it's going to cost a million dollars to get CMMC level three. Well, only if you were being completely callous with everybody's information and not caring about it, maybe. Uh, then the assessment cost question. I don't think that 2.0 necessarily reduced assessment costs for the folks that are going to be in scope for level two or three. But by definition, assessment costs is lower for small companies. And here's why. Big companies have many instances of things that occur. They don't have just one firewall. They don't have just one password instance. They have many different locations, many different instances of things occurring. If they're running training, they have many different instances of those. Assessors have to look at multiple instances. If they have eight different entrances to a building, every entrance has to be examined, right? Whereas if it's a home office, there's only one entrance or maybe two. So by definition, smaller companies have fewer instances, therefore it takes less time and money to conduct an assessment. There's no such thing as a blanket assessment cost. It's impossible. Because if you say to me, I, I want you to, um, well, I just did a big assessment for Boeing training systems, right? Is that assessment bigger than the one for the 10 person company I did a week before? Absolutely, completely different. So I don't think that 2.0 reduced costs for that group of folks that need to be in level two, but I do think that the discussion about costs for CMMC is skewed and people aren't talking about the real cost of CMMC yeah. or any of these assessment regimes. So, you know, and I, I think, you know, here working with the right organizations can help as well. Um, you know, a good MSSP that's going to come alongside and, and help in remediation um, is not going to just throw one size fits all. A very, very small organization doesn't need GCC high to meet those requirements. There's other methods and technologies that are cheaper or, or more cost effective, I should say, uh, for a tiny organization than if you're a hundred plus and, and, and bigger company. Um, what about, well, I remember between the, really quick, Matt. Oh, well, go ahead. Well, I think to get to the core point on the question though, the requirements have not changed. Right. CMMC 1.0 to 2.0 dropped two audit requirements. I know because I wrote the domain in the original assessment guide. Right. Yeah. Review logs. Duh, that was a Gibbs moment. You got to look at your logs and review them. If you have a tool, the tool does that for you. Good luck trying to do it manually. My business, we're small. We generate a million plus audited events a day. Person cannot do that. You need a tool to do that. And then the other one was collect your logs into a repository or more than one repositories. You've got to do that anyway. So the requirements have not changed. Right. And, and to the point for a small business, yeah, for us as a good example, I'm spending about $600 a month up in GCC high to collect all my logs, to let it do the analytics, and then tell me when something's happening. Um, so it, it's not a huge expense, but it is an ongoing operating expense. Yeah. Uh, and I think I'm gonna throw this one to Jeff specifically because, um, and anybody else can contribute, but I know there was a lot of talk in the actual requirements of, a, of certification on how many assessors you needed. And it jumped from, from one to, you know, the. 5,000, I'm just exaggerating, but, but can we address that? Right? Yeah. Has, has that changed? Is, is there any kind of common sense behind where we're at on that? And that, cause that definitely affects the cost of a, a smaller yeah. company doing a certification. Yeah, so I think there is common sense in having multiple team members as an appraisal team. I think having a team makes a lot of sense. Um, the, right now the DOD has asked that that team size be a minimum of four which actually matches our recommendation going back to the very beginning. The one change that they have made is that they want all four of those people to be certified assessors. Uh, we had originally um, recommended that the other three be certified professionals or people who weren't fully certified assessors, but the DOD has changed that policy. And, it, and I have not heard that there's a change in that, 
there have been discussions about uh, getting certified professionals in that role. Uh, but right now, according to the CAP, it's four certified assessors is the minimum size assessment team. Yeah, and that, that's what got the authorized C3PO's in trouble when they started um, costing out the assessments. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was a part of one of the authorized C3PO's. And as soon as those SOWs were getting around in the public, which they shouldn't have, they noticed that it was much higher than that $51,000 baseline for CMMC level three that the DOD was putting out there. Well, that was based on one assessor and two RP, so to speak. You know, if you look right. at it, it's called journeyman. So now that you put four well-seasoned assessors on a team, that skyrockets that cost. Yeah. And you know, yeah. so, uh, uh, they're still going to uh, have a higher cost if they still want to have a minimum of four assessors on, right. on the team. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, and that's something that during the, um, during the analysis and the investigation that was done by the GAO and by the DIPCAC or DCMA, I guess, you know, the last several months, that was something that was impressed upon them that the requirement was going to, uh, the, I mean, the bottom line is that certified assessors are high bill rate people. They're, they're by definition, people with 10 to 20 years of serious experience that went through expensive training and certification. Uh, in, in my business, I'm a CMMI lead appraiser, and it's, I get it. It's, it cost me $80,000 to become a, a lead appraiser. Um, I'm not going to just, you know, I'm going to have a fairly high bill rate because of that. That's just business. Mm -hmm. And so now that there's going to be four on a team, that obviously does drive the cost up. Um, like I said, there's yeah, discussions going question. on about that. How many, um, how many uh, certified assessors are there within on your books now? And what's the flight path for, for building that number? There's about 175 on the books. Not all of them have completed the necessary background check requirements, but are in the process. Um, there's also currently certified professional classes going on. Uh, people have completed them. And that's the first step at the next wave of certified assessors, which is the formal class once it's all out. So 175 active right now. Um, so you can see that the, the challenge with that is that with four, four required and only 175 and something like 70,000 companies, um, it's, it's a, you know, it's a decades long project, right? <laughs> that so, was my next question. <laughs> yeah, so getting moved through the, the process of getting the classes approved by the DOD and the exams approved and rolled out um, is critical for sure. And that's something we're working with them every day on. Hey, Jeff, can I come back to the four assessors per assessment? Sure. Yeah. Do we have to use full-time assessors during that assessment? Or can I bring in Tony? Tony, you're my lead assessor. and You're an expert in Office 365. Yeah. I need you to go evaluate these controls against Office 365. And it's a limited scope, but he's on the book as, a, as an assessor. He's just right. not for the full assessment. Is that allowed? Yeah, so when I, I was lucky enough, I led the accreditation uh, certification team when the startup occurred. And the reason that I chose to separate C3PAOs from assessors was because I anticipated this problem would be here. And uh, I, the answer is yes. Uh, there's no reason that your company can't contract Tony's company and say, and if it's company to company, you don't even need to, it's not even a 1099 relationship. You just send in invoices to each other. There's no reason you can't expand your team temporarily with Tony and Dasha and whoever else. Uh, well, my question is more nuanced. It's more of in that four assessment team members, granted, theoretically, one of them is the QA. Yeah. So the other three, do they need to be engaged full time for the entire assessment period with that client? Or can you have the lead assessor who would be full-time with that client yeah. and then bring other assessors in part-time right. for specific areas to reduce costs? Yeah, the way I, we worked it in my previous company was uh, by default, they cannot be full-time. Why have them sit there when they're not a part of an, of, of a, uh, of an interview? So they are on the clock for a certain amount of time. You're going to have those experts, as you said, Matt, uh, you're going to have those experts, you're going to have your AC and your IA expert, it's usually the same person, that's going to take them a considerable amount of time, but not 40 hours in a week. Mm -hmm. So you, you yeah. got to properly schedule it. Now, keep in mind that the, the other PA that's a QA, 
that's not a full-time job. Right. Right? They're, they're the ones who's registering an EMAS. They're updating EMAS with the reports. They're doing all the EMAS duties. So the way we planned that was that Q, QA was a full-time person on staff at the C3PAO who would work multiple assessments um, up maintaining EMAS. So the cap defines this. It's a great question. Good, it's, good, yeah. it's, it's, I like the question because I have an answer. It's, <laughs> in the, it's in the cap. And if you recall, the cap is basically three phases, right? There's the planning and scoping phase, there's a conduct phase, and there's the QA presentation phase. Uh, it's expected that the phase one is going to be a, the lead doing that work alone. Um, and then during phase two, there's certain events that are required to have the full team the scoring, for instance, mm -hmm. and the reporting are required, but there's no reason that one or two or more people need to be in interviews. There's no reason that couldn't be two people instead of four. It's really up to you how you, how you have to run that. But there are certain events within phase two that require the entire team to be right, together right. at least exactly. virtually. Yeah, the, the daily check, I forget what it's called. Daily check-in. Check yeah, right, daily yeah. check-in, the whole team has to be there, correct. Right, right. All right. Um, get down to the nuts and bolts again. I have a question here. It says, do I still have to separate responsibilities and duties outside the IT department? How you had to have somebody that was not under the chain of command of, of the CISO to do sign-offs and, and dealing with policy and, and things like that. Is that, is that uh, separation still required under NIST 800-171? I think separation is always required when it comes to security. It doesn't matter what, um, I mean, NIST, FedRAMP, whatever you want to take, it's it's the fact that you cannot, if you create something, if you manage something, you cannot check your own homework. So the separation between IT and security has to be there. Or you have IT, security, and compliance and risk management if you're a big company. So yeah, it, it is best practice. It is a requirement. And it's also in your own interest as a company to make sure that you have somebody checking on IT because not to say anything, but IT, they're here to make things work. They're here to make sure everything is up and running. Security is probably one of the last things on their mind. And they might take shortcuts or they might not even think about it because it's not their domain. So, yes. Shortcuts? Never. Oh, yeah, I did that vulnerability scan. Oh, yeah, everything's patched. Yeah. <laughs> But um, all right, here's a great question. Um, you were talking about having policies and procedures, but the, uh, but the original CMMC said these practices may be done in an ad hoc manner and may or may not rely on documentation. Is version two going to require documentation unlike version two for self-certification, level one self-cert in particular? Anybody can take it. Go Matt. Uh, the answer is easy. Go look at NIST 800-171A, open up every practice, and in there you're going to see evidentiary objects. Policies are your very first one, procedures are your next one, and then a whole list of other things that all the assessors on this panel, that's what we're going to go look for. So, yep, they're still needed. Great answer. Um, just a house cleaning, we're coming up on the 10 minute mark. So we have a, a time for a couple more questions and then, then we'll, uh, we'll wrap this up. I got it. I, I want to piggyback on what Matt just said. From an assessment perspective, when we come in, if, if you, for example, have access control password policies, we can check. But you need to, as a company, you need to have it documented because how do you know what you're actually putting out there? How do you control access? How do you change passwords? What is the standard? And if you have staff, they need to have instructions from you as a company what your standard is. So yes, in this case, policies, procedures are a documentation to tell you how and what needs to be done at what frequency by whom. And that's the stuff that we check against. So those are internal instructions for you, but also for us to validate, to make sure that you're really doing what you said you were going to do. Great. I have a question that um, somebody's in the process of um, getting ready for an assessment, not certification. What, uh, what are the things they need to do? So 
kind of like a checklist, what's the best things that they can do to be prepared for an assessment? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things there. Obviously, uh, and some of the assessors can weigh in as, as well, but obviously an inventory of, of the practices uh, and being sure that you have uh, the appropriate information to share with an assessor to demonstrate that you are in fact performing those practices. But, but I have another technique that I use with, with clients of mine that works really well. I, I ask them to, to have a strong narrative for every practice and to explain to me, here's how we do this. And it's the, it's the how-to narrative, right? So this one, here's how we do this. We do this, 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 and the other thing. And if you would like me to, to prove certain things, I can show you some evidence here. Make sure that you've you've gone through the model and you have a strong narrative for every single practice uh, so that you can explain, and I always say, explain to the assessor like they're in second grade, how you do the thing that, that you're talking about. Yeah, uh, and don't I, be I afraid to, to just, say... Um, oh, go ahead, Robert. No, I was just going to say that just one thing. So, you know, there, there's a whole list of things that need to be done to build this culture, and some will take longer than others. So you might want to start looking at the longer lead items first, you know, whilst you're thinking about the entirety of that, which you're trying to do. Yeah. And um, I would also say, don't be afraid to, to say you're not doing something. That's the whole purpose of the assessment, right? To find those gaps that come alongside and help you with a plan so that you can fill those gaps and then have a plan of sustainability. So the, I'm going to go back to one of Jeff's earlier comments. The thing we really emphasize, executive-led governance. We don't call it configuration management boards, change management boards. We call it IT or information security steering groups. Get the executives involved. Get them to be the guinea pigs for MFA. Everything that's going out, they test first and then roll out to the company. That gets the culture in place. And that, in the end, gets to what Jeff said is the how follows easily after that. Thanks. Um, one here is, I'm in the process of becoming a C3PAO now. What do I do? I, that's kind of vague, but... Um, well, a, a couple of things. I mean, obviously there's, um, there's logistical and, and process steps to be followed with the AB and getting with the, the manager there. John Haney is currently doing a great job at the AB on this. Um, so there's those steps, but I think, I, I think some of you all have had C-3PO's go through this process. So that getting ready for that DIPCAC event's probably the biggest thing. So why don't one of you talk about that a little bit? Uh, going through the DIBCAC assessment, um, it, um, I think, uh, Matt, you put it up the executive level. You know, you had that 3.997. To me, that drove the success of an assessment. And that is that, so to me, the, the, the strategy you know, called resource, resource a plan um, to, to ensure that you have everything in place for all 17 domains, as it was. Um, you, if you don't get that buy-in, you're going to have a difficult time. That's, that's what Matt was mentioning. And, and I made sure with our company that, that that was in place. We actually coached every executive. Um, our CEO was in every interview during the assessment. And they, so all the executives, your CFO, your, your HR, your marketing, because marketing will be interviewed even for a CMC level two assessment here. Um, they all need to understand the story and where they fit in when it comes to uh, protecting CUI. Um, it goes back to the IT governance, as uh, as Matt said, if you, if you got a strong IT governance program in place, that's going to flow down and it's really going to help you solidify um, becoming compliant with CMMC and help you uh, be more successful for, for being ready for that certification. Great. Thanks for that answer, Tony. Um, Dasha, I'm going to throw out there just a general aspect of MSSPs with the smaller organizations, um, they can really benefit from a, a, a quality managed uh, security services provider that can save them money, right? Versus them going out, getting all these tools and trying to manage it all themselves. I think overall, it's not just about MSSP. It's as a company in general, you have to first identify 
what is it what I need to do? Where are the gaps that I need to break? And then really figure out, do I have the skill set in-house? Do I have the tools? Do I have the know-how? Do I have the, the time, the resources to do something in-house? And if yes, great. And then also evaluate, can I go somewhere else? Can I get some other services somewhere else? So reinventing the wheel from scratch, I would say probably most of the time does not make much sense from a time and from a cost perspective. So why would you want to recreate your secure environment in-house or on-prem with FISMA, FedRAMP, uh, encryption, logging, monitoring, SIM, if you can get that, for example, for a fraction with GCC High. Um, if, you, if you're trying to, for example, identify the, where the gaps are and you don't know as a small company what they are, maybe get a consultant on board, have them help you walk through this, identify really what it is, get a poem and then start evaluating. Here, this, here's what I can do in-house, here's what I need to outsource. Talk to companies, get the best approach. Now, MSSPs, consultants, wherever you go, make sure that if you don't do it in-house or even if you do it in-house, you still have the policies, the procedures, the documentation, or if you outsource it, that whoever you outsource it to, they provide you the policies, the documentation, the evidence, all of that stuff that you're going to need. Because just because you push it out and give the responsibility to somebody else, you as the company are still getting the certification. You are responsible for it. So find a partner that can get you that evidence. Otherwise, you're... Yeah. Yeah. May I jump in on that just for a second? So, so we've had three or four instances now where folks have engaged with us for pre-assessments. Um, very, very quickly, you know, within a day, we've realized that they're so far from being ready that we've actually ceased those engagements and they've used the, the funds to, to work on remediation activities for the key items before we can go anywhere near assessments. So my counsel would be actually maybe engage with a consultant and have that conversation to get some detail around your what what it is that you need to do around cmmc before you even think you're ready it, it's just a, you know it, it's um i think it would save you money in the long run if you if you took that kind of uh that third party uh point of view yeah thanks robert and i think for the really small companies the level ones there's a lot of programs out there really quick i'm gonna if brian tucker wants to say hi um, he's, uh, runs a program at, um, University of Huntsville, where they do a lot of educational, uh, aspects around this for small businesses and, and helping them understand. So. Hey, thank Yeah. Thanks, David. Um, we've got a grant from the DOD that allows us to provide education assistance to small and medium-sized industries. Um, and uh, so we're able to just provide education assistance, webinars and things like that. But for CMMC level one and uh, NIST 800-171 CMMC level two, uh, we provide what we call sort of a, a, a guided self-assessment where we kind of walk them through the assessments using the, uh, the provided assessment guides. And just we've created just an Excel spreadsheet that helps them, um, you know, we kind of help them understand where they are provide them with uh, guided action plans for what, uh, you know, the assessment guide says the should be observed. And um, the spreadsheet can kind of be used um, even after the engagement for them to update their actions, automatically updates their system security plan using macros, um, recalculates their um, NIST 800-171 assessment score for them to update that as they, as they progress. So um, we're able to do that at a, Reduced price, we do have to charge a little bit of a copay. We're able to do that at a reduced price for um, Alabama companies in the DIB. So thanks, David. You're welcome, Brian. Thanks for the kit. Well, we're here. Uh, appreciate everybody. Any last words, Robert, Jeff, Dasha? Uh, I, I mean, go ahead, yeah, Jeff. All right. I would just close with, with two quick things. One, uh, let's not focus on evidence as much as protecting data in the nation, because that's mm -hmm. what this is really about. And we get myopically wound up in, in evidence discussions. Um, that's not the way to go about this. So that'd be the first thing. And the second one is that 
there are going to be voluntary assessments launching very soon. And I encourage your company to consider doing that because the faster we get you on board, the more protected the data and networks are. So thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. So a, a sincere and heartfelt thank you from me, especially to our panelists. I mean, you, you guys just jumped in on, on all of that. Um, fantastic. The, we will be posting this on YouTube. So those that didn't uh, get an opportunity to see it, we'll send the link out and, and everything. And thanks to everyone for, for joining in and listening. So hopefully there was, we answered some of your kind of pressing questions. We have, if we, we'll go through the chat questions. If there's anything there that we did not cover, then we will respond to those. Um, but otherwise, thank you all. Look out for another one of these. I think, you know, CMMC2 clearly is not going away. So if, give it six weeks or so, we'll have another kind of sit down, continue to send your questions in because we'd be delighted to help answer those. But other than that, thank you all sincerely and uh, and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for having Thanks. me. Thank you very much, everyone.